Welcome and happy holidays from Parsons Nose Radio Theatre of the Air. Tonight's performance is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, generously sponsored by Dr. Mario and Therese Molina. Adaptation by Lance Davis, performed in brilliantly improvised remote conditions by the Parsons Nose Company, who will be credited later, with sound design by Dave Bennett and Lance Davis. At Parsons Notes, we take a different view through the prism to create a celebration of Mr. Dickens' magnificent use of the English language. We emphasize the brilliant but often overlooked descriptions he provides through our narrators, Mary Shallan and Barry Gordon. They are the stars of our production. We hope you'll enjoy Dickens' descriptions of guests and grocers' shops and bells and carols as much as we do. So sit back with a cup of spirits, and join us in this Christmas classic. Act One will take 53 minutes of your time, then a refill, perhaps, for our 20-minute Act Two. And now, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Stave one. Molly was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Molly was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing remarkable in his taking a stroll at night to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out Marley's name above the warehouse door. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, 
but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. He couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and as shortly as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore, the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew. Bah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I am sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come, what right have you to be dismal? You're rich enough. Humbug. Oh, don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle! Nephew. Keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine. But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good has it ever done you. There are many things, Uncle, from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited. I dare say Christmas among the rest. But I have always thought of Christmas as the only time in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, not a race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good, and I say God bless it. Mr. Cratchit. Let me hear another sound from you, sir, and you shall keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Oh, don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I will. I will. I will see you in hell first. But why, Uncle? Why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. Good afternoon. Nay, Uncle, you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Blah. With all my heart to find you so resolute. But I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. And so a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Blah. And a Happy New Year. Blah. Good afternoon. Oh, there's another fellow, my clerk. With but fifteen shillings a week, a wife and family, talking about a merry Christmas, I'll retire to Bedlam. The clerk, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, let two people in. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years, sir. He died seven years ago this very night. Well... We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, 
who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, they are still in operation? They are. I, I wish I could say they were not. The poor law is in full vigour, then. It is very busy, sir. No. I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I am very glad to hear it. Sir, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of war. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. Now, what shall we put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I do not make merry myself at Christmas, and I cannot afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, sir, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. It is not my business, sirs. It is enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon. Seeing it would be useless to pursue their point, the good people withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labours with an improved opinion of himself, and in a more facetious temper than was usual with him. Meanwhile, the fog and darkness thickened. The cold became intense, piercing, searching, biting cold. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Humbug! Yes, sir. Merry Christmas, sir. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose? If it's quite convenient, sir. It is not convenient. And it's not fair. If I was to keep half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound, and yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work? But, but sir, it, it's only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Be here all the earlier next morning. Oh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. The office was closed in a twinkling. And the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, went down a slide on Corn Hill at the end of a lane of boys twenty times in honor of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at blind man's buff. Scrooge took his dinner and went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner, 
a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of a building, up a yard where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with other houses and forgotten its way out again. Nobody lived in it but Scrooge. Now, is it a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except it was very large? It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning. Also, that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the City of London. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his dead partner that afternoon. And then, let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. But as Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon... It was a knocker again. He fastened the door, walked across the hall, and up the stairs. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. Mm. But before he shut the door, he walked through his rooms. Mm. Nobody under the table. Mm. Nobody under the sofa. Mm. Nobody under the bed. Mm. Quite satisfied... He closed his door and locked himself in, put on his dressing gown, slippers and nightcap, and sat down before the fire. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant, and paved all round with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, queens of Sheba, apostles putting off to sea in butterboats. His glance happened to rest upon a bell that hung in the room. And as he looked, this bell began to swing. Soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. The bells ceased as they had begun. They were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below as if some person were dragging a heavy chain. The cellar door flew open, and he heard the noise much louder, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. I don't believe it. His color changed, though when without a pause it came through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Marley's ghost. The same face, the very same. Marley in his pigtail waistcoat, tights and boots. The chain he drew was wound about him like a tail made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks and heavy purses. His body was transparent so that Scrooge could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. How now? 
What do you want with me? Much. Marley's voice. No doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? You're particular for a shade. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down? I can. Do it then. The ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace. You, you don't believe in me. I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing can affect them. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a fragment of underdone potato. There's more of the gravy than of the grave about you, whatever you are. At this, the spirit shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round its head, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do. I must. But why do spirits walk the earth, and and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me. And witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. You are... you are fettered, Jacob. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will. Is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and long seven Christmas Eves ago, and you have labored on it since. Oh, It is a ponderous chain. Do speak comfort, Jacob. I have none to give. Nor can I tell you what I would. I cannot rest. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. My spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing home. And weary journeys lie before me. Seven years dead and traveling all that time. The whole time. No rest, no peace. You travel fast. On the wings of the wind. Seven years. Captive, bound and double iron. But you were a good man of business, Jacob. 
business. Mankind was my business. Charity, mercy, and benevolence were all my business. At this time of the year, I suffer most. Hear me. My time is nearly gone. How it is that I appear before you, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. It was not an agreeable idea. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring. You were always a good friend, Jim. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the hope you mentioned, Jacob? I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I now tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Expect the second the next night at the same hour. Could I take them all at once and have it over? Hmm? The third the next night at the stroke of twelve. Look to see me no more. And look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its kerchief from the table and bound it round its head. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window behind raised itself a little, till it was wide open. Scrooge became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful. The spectre joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window. The air was filled with phantoms, ghosts of departed usurers, wandering hither and thither and moaning as they went. Every one wore chains. Some few were linked together. None were free. Many had been known to Scrooge. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant. The misery with them all was that they sought to interfere for good in human matters, but had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together. Scrooge closed the window, and being from the emotion he had undergone or his glimpse of the invisible world, much in need of repose, went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep. Stave 2 Twelve o'clock? Impossible! Jacob Marley! Was it a dream? 
He said, visitation when the bell tolls. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man. It wore a tunic of the purest white. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold me? I am. I am the spirit of Christmas past. What business brings you here? Your welfare. Much obliged. Perhaps an unbroken rest might have served me better. Your reclamation, then. Rise and walk with me. The spirit moved to the window. But uh, the hour, the, the, the weather, I, I, I might fall. I've... Bear but a touch of my hand, and you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. It was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Where are you leading me? He was conscious of a thousand odours floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes long, long forgotten. Good heaven! I was a boy here. You remember the way, then? Remember it? I could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance, with its bridge, its church, and winding river. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them with boys upon their backs, who called to other boys and country gigs driven by farmers. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Alfred! Merry Christmas! All were in great spirits and shouted to each other until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. Merry Christmas! <laughs> These are but shadows of things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. I know. They left the high road and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick. A large house of broken fortunes. Offices little used, windows broken. They entered the dreary hall to a door at the back. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made barer still by lines of plain desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down and wept. Suddenly, a man in foreign garments, wonderfully real, stood outside the window with an axe in his belt and leading an ass laden with wood. Why, it's 
Alibaba. Dear old Alibaba, yes, yes, one Christmas time, when yonder child was left here all alone, he did come, just like that, and, and Valentine, his wild brother Orson, and, and, and the Sultan's groom, turned upside down by the genie, oh, there he is, serve him right. What business had he to be married to the princess? <laughs> uh, poor Robin Crusoe. Where have you been, Robin Crusoe? And there goes Friday, <laughs> running for his life. <laughs> oh, that poor boy. I wish... What do you wish? Uh, nothing. There was a girl singing outside my door last night, that's all. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger. The schoolroom became darker and more dirty. The panels shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell. There he was, alone again, while the other boys had gone home for the holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down. Scrooge glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a girl came darting in and put her arms about his neck and kissed him. Dear, dear brother, I've come to bring you home, dear brother, to bring you home. Home, little fan. Yes, home for good and all, home forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be that home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one night when I was going to bed, I was not afraid to ask him if you might come home, and he said, yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you, and you're never to come back here, but first, we're going to be together all the Christmas long, and have the merriest time in all the world. You are quite a woman, little fan. A delicate creature, but she had a large heart. So she had. I will not gainsay it, spirit. She died a woman and had, as I think, children. One child. Fred. Although they had but at that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city. It was evening, and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a warehouse door. Is this... Is this was I apprenticed here? They went in. The sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig sitting behind a high desk. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer, Dick. Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice. <laughs> Dick Wilkins, to be sure. No more work tonight, boys. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer, shut us up. They charged into the street with the shutters, had them up in their places, barred them and pinned them, and came back panting like racehorses. Clear away, lads. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away. It was done in a minute. The floor was swept, the lamps trimmed, fuel heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and bright a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler and went up to the desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned like fifty stomach aches. In came three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. 
In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way. In they all came, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly. To the dance floor they all went, twenty couple at once. There were dances and forfeits and more dances, and there was cake and there was negus and there was cold roast and there was cold boiled and there was mince pies and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came when the fiddler struck up Sir Roger de Coverley. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. And if that's not high praise, tell me higher, and I shall use it. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had gone all through the dance, advance and retire, both hands to partner, bow and curtsy, thread the needle and back again, Fezziwig cut, cut so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. And thus, the cheerful voices died away. A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? Is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal's money. Is that so much that he deserves such praise? Oh, it isn't that, Spirit. Mr. Fezziwig has the power to render us happy or unhappy. His power lies in his words and, and looks. The happiness he gives to us is as great as if it cost a fortune. Why, why, <sighs> What's the matter? I should like to be able to say a word to my clerk just now, that's all. <clears throat> Scrooge and the ghost again stood in the open air. My time grows short. Again, Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, in the prime of life. His face had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was a restless motion in his eye. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl, in whose eyes there were tears. It matters little to you, very little. Another idol has displaced me. But if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no cause to grieve. Belle, what idol has displaced you? A golden one, Ebenezer. Ha! Such is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and yet there is nothing it condemns with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, Ebenezer. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. And if I have grown, what then? 
I've not changed toward you, have I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so until we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You were changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you now are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Well, have I sought release? In words? No. In what then? In a changed nature, in altered spirit, in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. Tell me, Ebenezer, if this had never been between us, would you seek me out now, a dowerless girl, and try to win me? You think not? Heaven knows I would gladly think otherwise if I could. I release you, Ebenezer, with a full heart, for the love of him you once were. You may, the memory of what has passed half makes me hope you will have pain in this. A brief time and then you will dismiss the recollection of it gladly, as an unprofitable dream from which it happened well that you awoke. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. Spirit. Show me no more. Yes, one shadow more. They were in another place. A room not large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl. So like Belle that Scrooge believed it was. Until he saw her. Now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in the room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children than Scrooge could count, and there were not forty children conducting themselves like one, but every child conducting itself like forty. A knocking at the door was heard. The father laden with toys and presents. Then, oh, the shouting and the struggling and the onslaught that was made to dive into his pockets, despoil him of his brown paper parcels, hug him round his neck and kick his legs in irrepressible affection. Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever when the master of the house, his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat with her and her mother at his own fireside. And when Scrooge thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and full of promise, might have called him father and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life. Belle, I saw an old bow of yours this afternoon. A bow? Who was it? Well, yes. Oh, don't I know. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window, and there he sat. Quite alone in all the world, I do believe. Come, dear, they've been so patient. 
Spirit, remove me from this place. These were shadows of things that have been. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. Scrooge observed that the spirit's light was burning high. And dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized an extinguisher cap and by a sudden action pressed it down upon the spirit. Haunt me no longer. But though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light which streamed from under it in an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted in his own bedroom. He had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Stave 3 Now Scrooge was ready for a broad field of strange appearances. Nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him. But being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the clock struck and no shape appeared but only a ghostly light... Strange... Where's that coming from? He began to think that the source of the light might be in the adjoining room. He got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. (sighs) It was his own room, there was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. Crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney. Heaped on the floor, to form a kind of throne, were turkeys, geese, Game, poultry, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch, not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up to shed its light on Scrooge. Enter, Scrooge. Come in, man, and know me better. I am the spirit of Christmas present. It was clothed in one simple green robe bordered with white fur. Its feet were bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set with shining icicles. You have never seen the like of me before? Never. Never walked with the younger members of my family? I don't think I have. Have, have you had many brothers, Spirit? More than 1,800. A tremendous family. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night and learned a lesson. If you have aught to teach me, I 
I shall profit by. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. The sky was gloomy, and yet was there an air of cheerfulness abroad, for the people shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball, laughing heartily if it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong. The poulterer's shops were still open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street. There were ruddy brown-faced onions, winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes. There were piles of filberts. There were Norfolk biffins, squash and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons and urgently entreating to be carried home in paper bags. And the grocers! Oh, the grocers! It was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound. Or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly. Or that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose. Or that the raisins were so plentiful. The almonds so extremely white. The sticks of cinnamon so long and straight. The candied fruit so caked and spotted with molten sugar. Mmm. And the customers, all so eager, they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter, and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the the like mistakes, in the best humour possible. And soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and their gayest faces. And at the same time, There emerged from scores of by-streets innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. These poor revellers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. It was a very uncommon kind of torch. For once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other... Oh, well, I never... I beg your pardon. Oh, really, sir? Then I beg your pardon. He shed a few drops on them, and their good humour was restored. After you, old man. No, after you. Let me help you with that. Ooh, that's heavy. What's in it? Pies. Pies? What kind? Mince, apple, pear, prune, wince. Wince, I say. For they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was. God love it, so it was. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch, sir? There is my own. (sighs) Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? To any kindly given, to a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? Because it needs it most. They went on invisible into the suburbs of the town to Scrooge's clerks. And on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling. 
Bob had but 15 bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but 15 copies of his Christian name. And yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes. And now, two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and known it for their own. Whatever's got your precious father, then? And your brother Tiny Tim? And Martha? Mother warn't as late last Christmas Day. Here's Martha, Mother. Why, bless you, my dear. How late you are. We had a deal of work to finish up last night, and I had to clear away his morning. Well, never mind, so long as you'll come. Sit down for the fire, dear, and have a warm. Yes, Father. Hi, Martha. Oh, hi, Martha, hi. So Martha hid herself, and in came Bob the father with three feet of comforter hanging down before him, his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Tiny Tim bore a little crutch, with his limbs supported by an iron frame. Merry Christmas, all. Why, where's our Martha? Not coming, father. Not coming? Not coming for Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, even if it were only in jest. So she came out from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, and young Peter bore Tiny Tim off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did Tim behave today? Oh, as good as gold and better. He gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped people did see him in church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember on Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. The young Cratchits went to the bakery to fetch the goose and soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of birds. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy... Master Peter mashed the potatoes. Martha sweetened the applesauce. Tiny Tim dusted the plates. At last, the dishes were set, and grace was said. Amen. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, after looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. And when she did... Mm. Oh, there never was such a goose. I don't believe there ever was such a goose. Its tenderness and flavour, size and cheapness were themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was sufficient dinner for the whole family. And the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion. And now Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous for witnesses, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Hello, 
with a great deal of steam, like a speckled cannonball blazing in ignited brandy, and with Christmas holly stuck into the top. A wonderful pudding, my dearest. Your greatest success since our marriage. Nobody thought it was a small pudding Mm. for a large family. It would have been heresy to do so. At last the dinner was done. The cloth cleared, apples and oranges put upon the table, and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. And all the family drew round the hearth. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Tim sat close to his father's side upon his little stool, and Bob held his withered little hand in his. Spirit, tell me if if tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner. If these shadows remain unaltered, the child will die. Oh no, spirit. Say, Say he will be spared. If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. I give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. Founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. My dear, the children, it's Christmas Day. It must be a Christmas Day in which one drinks to the health of such an unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake, not for his. A Merry Christmas, me loves, and a Happy New Year. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another. And when they faded, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially upon Tiny Tim, until the last intermission. By this time it was getting dark and snowing heavily, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens and parlours was wonderful. Here the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cosy dinner. There all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles and aunts. Here were guests assembling. And there, a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur-booted, all chattering at once, tripped lightly off to some neighbor's house, where woe upon the single man who saw them enter, artful witches, well they knew it, in a glow. And now, without a word of warning, they stood upon a desert moor where masses of rude stone were cast about as though it were the burial place of giants. What place is this? Where miners live who labor in the bowels of the earth. They know me. A light shone from the window of a hut. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled around a glowing fire. 
an old man and woman with their children and their children's children and another generation beyond that, all decked out in their holiday attire. It is the night of a dear Savior's birth. The spirit did not tarry here. Oh, oh not, uh, not, not to see. To see. Uh, not, uh, uh, a lighthouse? Merry Christmas! What's that? Merry Christmas! What? Merry Christmas! Ah, Merry Christmas! Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen when, when the, the snow, snow lay round about, about deep and crisp and, crisp and even. even. Whoa! <laughs> Again the ghosts sped on above the black and heaving, until far away from any shore they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke to his companion of some bygone Christmas day. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had a kinder word for one another on that day than on any day in the year, and remembered those at a distance he cared for, and knew that they remembered him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise for Scrooge to recognize it as his nephew's and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room. And if you should happen, by any unlikely chance, to know a man more blessed in a laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him too. It's true. He said Christmas was a humbug, as I live. He believed it too. Well, more shame for him, Fred. Scrooge's niece... Bless those women. They never do anything by halves and are always in earnest. Yes, he's a comical old fellow and not so pleasant as he might be. But his offences carry their own punishment, and I'm sure I have nothing to say against him. And I'm sure he's very rich. At least you always tell me so. Yes, dear, but his wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. Well, I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I'm sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. He takes it into his head to dislike us and won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? True, he don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. And I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it if he finds me going there in good humor year after year, saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? And if it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. After tea, they had more music and played forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. 
There was blind man's buff and mistletoe. Scrooge begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guests departed. One half hour, Spirit. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something and the rest must find out what. He only answering yes or no. Uh, an animal? A, a live animal? A, a disagreeable animal? A, a savage animal? A, an animal that growled and grunted and, and lived in London and walked on the streets, but, but was not a horse or an ass or a cow or a bull or a tiger or a dog or a pig or a cat or a bear? Fred, I know! It's your Uncle Scrooge! <laughs> It was a long night, and strange, too, in that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older. Our spirit's lives so short. My life is brief. It ends tonight. Forgive me, I... I see that something... I see something strange protruding from your skirt. Is... is that a foot or a, a claw? Look, here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children. Wretched, hideous. A boy and a girl. Yellow, ragged, wolfish. Where youth should have filled their features, a stale and shriveled hand had pinched and twisted them. Where angels might have sat, Devils lurked and glared out menacing. Are they yours? They are mankind. The boy is ignorance, the girl is want. Beware them both, but most beware the boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doomed. Have they no refuge? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Day four. Scrooge lifted his eyes and beheld a solemn phantom. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. <gasps> I am in the presence of the spirit of Christmas yet to come. Oh, spirit, I... I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, I am prepared to bear you company. Will you not speak to me? Lead on. The city seemed to spring up about them. They were on the exchange among the merchants. No, I don't know much about it. I, I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. But I thought he'd never die. <laughs> what was the matter with him? <laughs> Lord knows. What's he done with his money? Hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. It'll be a cheap funeral, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. <laughs> I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, <laughs> but I must be fed. 
The phantom glided on into a street. Its finger pointed to two persons. How are you? How are you? Well, old Scratch got his own at last. So I'm told. Cold, isn't it? Christmas, Walter. You're not a skater, eh? Heavens, no. Well, good morning. Good morning. Scrooge was surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversations so trivial. They left and went into an obscure part of the town. The ways foul and narrow, alleys and archways like so many cesspools. Far in this den there was a low-browed, beetling shop where old rags, bottles, bones and greasy offal were bought. Upon the floor were piled heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in was old Joe. Let the charwoman to be first. Let the laundress to be second. Look here, old Joe. Here's a chance. You couldn't have met in a better place. Come into the parlour. <laughs> We're all suitable to our calling. Come into the parlour. The woman who had spoken threw her bundle on the floor. What odds, in Mrs. Duber? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. No man more so. Who's the wiser, huh? None indeed. Who's the worse for the loss of a few things? Not a dead man. <laughs> no, indeed. If he wanted to keep them after he was dead, the old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck, instead of gasping out his last all alone. Truest words that ever was spoke. It's a judgment on him, it is. Open that bundle, Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain now. It was not extensive. A seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons. Sheets, towels, two silver teaspoons, sugar tongs. Well, here you are then. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine. Now my bundle, Joe. Joe dragged out her large and heavy roll. What do you call this then? His bed curtains? You don't mean to say you took them down with him still lying there? Yes, I do. And why not? You were born to make your fortune, and you'll certainly do it. I shan't do back my hand when I can get anything by reaching it out. Ah, now don't drop wax on his blankets. His blankets? Whose else? He isn't likely to take cold anymore, is he? <laughs> I hope he didn't die of nothing catching. Now don't you be afraid of that. I ain't so fond of his company what I'd loiter about it. And you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find an hole in it. I'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting it? Putting him on it to be buried in. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off him again. <laughs> <laughs> I see, spirit. This, the, the case of this unhappy man might be my own. The phantom spread its dark robe before him like a wing 
and withdrawing it, revealed a room. Well, is it good or bad? <sighs> bad. Then we're ruined. There's hope yet, Caroline. Yes, yes, if he relents, nothing is past hope. He's past relenting, my dear. He's dead. Thank God. Oh, forgive me. What the old woman said was true. He was not only ill, but dying. To whom will our debt be transferred? Did she say? I don't know. But before that time, we'll be ready with the money. And even were we not, it would be bad luck indeed to find so merciless a creditor in his successor. We may sleep tonight with light hearts, Caroline. <sighs> yes. Yes. Oh, spirit. Spirit, let me see some tenderness connected with death. The ghost conducted him through several streets until they entered Bob Cratchit's house and found mother and children seated round the fire. And he took a child and set him in the midst of him. Where have I heard those words? Oh, this colour hurts my eyes. And I mustn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home. It must be near his time now. Past it, Mother. I think he walks a little slower than he used these last few evenings. Oh, I've known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. He was very light to carry, and his father loved him, so it was no trouble. But here he is. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to it most. Well, look at the work upon this table. You'll be done well before Sunday. You went again today then, Robert? Oh, how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him so we would walk there on a Sunday. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, Fred, who, meeting him in the street that day, inquired. I'm utterly sorry for it, he said. And sorry for your good wife. Though, how he knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife. <laughs> Everybody knows that, Father. <laughs> I hope they do, my boy. If I can be of service to you in any way, he said, giving me his card, that's where I live. It seemed almost as if he'd known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I shouldn't be at all surprised, mark what I say, if it got Peter a better situation. Did you hear that, Peter? Oh, then Peter will be keeping company with someone and setting up house for himself. It's as likely as not one of these days. But however, and whenever we part from one another, we shall none of us forget our tiny Tim, or the first parting that there was among us. We recollect how patient and how mild he was. We shall not quarrel easily among ourselves, eh? No, never, Father, never. I am very happy. They reached an iron gate. Spirit. Something informs me that our, 
Our parting moment is at hand. A dismal churchyard, overrun by grass and weeds, choked up with too much burying. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Uh, spirit, before I draw near the stone to which you point, one question. Uh, uh, are these the shadows of things that will be, or the shadows of, of things that may be? Eh? M men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the course be departed from, the ends will change. Eh? S say, it is thus with what you show me? Eh? Eh? <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge. No. Was, was I? Am I that man? No, no, no. No spirit, no spirit. Hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I have been. I will honor Christmas and keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The, the, the spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, 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 tell me. Did I miss sponge away the writing on the stone? Oh, spirits. <laughs> he caught the spectral hand, the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into his bedpost. Huh? A bedpost? It's mine own. Yes, this bed is mine own. This, this room. Best, best of the... The time before me is my own to make amends. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirit of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven in the Christmas time be praised for this. Oh, 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 oh I don't know what to do. I'm, oh, oh I'm as light as a feather then. There's the door Jacob entered, and there's there's the corner where the ghost sat, and, and, and there's the window where I saw the spirits. It's all true. It all happened. <laughs> it was a splendid laugh, an illustrious laugh. Oh, I... I don't know what day it is. I, 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 I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I, 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 well, I, I, I don't know anything. I, I'm, I'm really quite a baby. Eh? He was checked by the churches ringing out the lustiest peals he had ever heard. Oh, Clash, clang, ding, oh, dong, bell. Missy, Missy. Sir? What's, what's today, my fine young lady? Huh? Why, it's Christmas Day. <gasps> I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night? But, but of course they can do anything they like. I, 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 miss, Miss, do you know the poulterers on the next street at the corner? I should hope I did. Remarkable girl. Do you, do you know whether they have sold the prize turkey that was hanging there? The one as big as me? Delightful, Miss. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's hanging there now. Go and buy it. <gasps> Walker! 
Tell them to bring it here, that I may give them direction where to take it. Come back with the man, I'll give you a shilling. In less than five minutes, a half a crown. The girl was off like a shot. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's. Yes, well, he shan't know who sent it. it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. <laughs> the chuckle with which he said this, and, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the girl were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat in his chair again and chuckled until he cried. He dressed himself all in his best and at last got into the streets. The people were pouring forth, and Scrooge regarded every one with a delighted smile. He had not gone far when he beheld the good people who had walked into his counting house the day before. And, uh, oh, my dear friend, a Merry Christmas to you. Allow me to beg your pardon and to make amends. Would you have the goodness to accept a... Lord, bless me. Dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? I... I don't know. We don't know what to say to such munificence. <laughs> well, don't say anything, eh? But don't... Come and see me, eh? Will you come and see me? Thank you. Thank you. He went to church and watched the people and, and patted children on the head. And in the afternoon... Is your master at home, my dear? Yeah. Thank you, he... He knows me. I'll, I'll just go in. Fred, I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in? It's a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful happiness. He was early at the office next morning. If only he could be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. The clock struck nine. <gasps> no Bob. Oh. Quarter past. No Bob. What do you mean by coming in this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I am... Step this way, sir, if you please. It, it says only once a year, I sir. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore... Therefore, Mr. Cratchit, I am about to raise your salary. Eh? <laughs> Merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas than I have given you for many a year. I will raise your salary and assist your family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl, eh? <laughs> now, make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, eh? Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. To Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the good old city knew. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. May that be truly said of us. 
and all of us. God bless us, everyone. We'd like to thank you for joining us in tonight's presentation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We'd like to especially thank our sponsors, Dr. Mario and Therese Molina. Our adaptation was by Lance Davis. The cast, recording under remote COVID conditions, included PNT company members Barry Gordon, Mary Shalon, Alan Brooks, Dorothy Brooks, James Calvert, John Rafter Lee, Jill Rogoszewski, Laureen Price, Marissa Chandler, Paul Perry, John Harnigal, Fred Thompson, Gary Lamb, and Lance Davis. Sound was by Dave Bennett and Lance Davis, courtesy of Free Sound and Creative Commons. For more about Parsons Knows, please go to www.parsonsknows.org. Our radio theater podcast may be found there and wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider subscribing or making a tax-deductible donation. These are rough waters for small arts groups. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merry Christmas, be safe, and happy holidays to all.